Welcome to another episode of The Walking Classroom. I'm Laura Fenn, and today I'm at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences in beautiful downtown Raleigh, North Carolina. With me today is Dr. Colin Bramer. He is the coordinator of the Natural World Investigates Lab here at the Museum of Natural Sciences. Dr. Bramer, Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. I this, think this is great. Well, thank you. So I was looking at your title, the coordinator of the Natural World Investigates Lab. And can you tell me a little bit more about that and what you do here at the museum? Well, the Investigate Labs, are, there are actually three different labs, but ours deals with, we call it everything down to the insect level. And it's, we look at bigger things um, dealing with nature. So we, you can come into our lab, the public's welcome, uh, seven days a week. And you can talk about or you can do experiments uh, based on physics, on you know how do plants breathe, on their stomata, the, the holes that they breathe through, uh, learn all about duckweed and how we are naturally cleaning up the environment. So you can do a lot of different things. You can look uh, through different kinds of microscopes. We have live praying mantids in the lab. We have live uh, caterpillars in the lab that we grow, just so people can, if they may not see it in nature, they can actually experience it in our lab. Can you just tell me really quickly, how do plants breathe? How do plants breathe? They actually have stomata, openings that they, they can actually open and close them on their leaves. So if you if you take what's known as a uh, scanning electromicrograph, in other mm. words, a, magnifi a magnification microscope that goes down to like super duper duper small, you can almost see bacteria individually. You can actually see these all these little almost like pores on their leaves, and those pores they can open and close them, and so that's how they breathe. <laughs> so you are an entomologist by profession. Can you tell me what an entomologist is? An entomologist is somebody that studies insects. Now, there are a lot of people that call everything a bug, um, but the the adage is all bugs are insects but not all insects are bugs. Hmm. In other words, everything crawling on the ground isn't a bug. A bug is a very specific type of insect. So people will call a spider a bug. Spider's not a bug. Hmm. They would call, say, uh, a pill bug or a roly-poly a bug. That's not a bug either. So bugs or entomologists study things that have three body sections, a head, thorax, and abdomen, and that have six legs. If it has more than, more than six legs... It's not a bug. If it has less than six legs, not a bug. And it has to have those three body sections as well. One of um, the things I saw that you were studying in particular are soldier flies. Yes. What in the world are soldier flies? Soldier flies are a very, very interesting group of true flies. Now, here's another thing uh -oh, another about rule. flies. Okay. Now, there are, you, you may see dragonflies and damselflies, things like that flying around. Those aren't true flies because they have four wings. True flies only have two wings, like a housefly. So true flies only have, have one pair of wings or, or two wings. And the group uh, Stratiomyde that I study, the soldier flies, they're a smaller group. They're very unique, like part of one of the, 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 the subgroups that I studied within the Stratiomyde. They were the females down in, down in uh, Central and South America. <clears throat> they were about an inch long. The bodies were bright metallic blue, and the, the heads were bright yellow. So they just had this very distinct look. They're absolutely gorgeous flies. I mean, see these metallic blue things. How big are they? The around. size of a pinky nail or the size of a thumbnail? Yeah, probably, probably the first, almost the size of the, up to your first joint of your pinky. Okay. From the tip of your pinky to the first joint. Okay. So they're very, very large flies as well. 
Stratiamides aren't problematic in any way. They're not harmful. They, they really, you wouldn't even know that they were there. They're all over the place. I collected them in my backyard here in Raleigh all the time. The only time you need soldiers is when there's a problem. Why would they be right. called a soldier fly? Because nobody really knows the basis of the soldier fly. It's partially because in the, the stratiamides, the soldier flies, they have a lot of different color patterns. Like they're the, the Siphomia, the, the group that I just described with the females that are bright blue and yellow heads, other ones here, say in North America, they're like yellow with black stripes. And so in Europe, when they were first describing these things, they were thinking that it was probably – it looked like a soldier's uniform because they have these very distinct stripes and patterns on them. But they also, on part of their, on part of their thorax, they have these anywhere from two to six spines sticking off it. And the spines don't do anything. They're not like a defense mechanism. But they have these distinct spines, so it could have had something to do with that as well. And what? How did you get so interested in this particular species of fly? What it sort actually of sparked your interest. It's just like how I uh, came to get into entomology. It was completely, I'd say, by happenstance. I wanted to be a musician when I was growing up, and, and I, my brother was a musician. I was like, yeah, I want to do that or whatever. And I never really wanted to go to college. I don't want to work in a factory my whole life, so I went to college. And I took general classes because I didn't know what to want, I wanted to do. Uh, and I took a biology class when I was a junior – or excuse me, when I was a freshman. And I'm, it, I liked it. And then so I took all the biology classes that the university offered. And my junior year, I took an entomology class. And it was the only thing that semester that was keeping my interest. And I just knew. I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And so I got my master's in it. I got my PhD in it. And the soldier flies just happened because my professor when I was doing my master's, he was traveling out. He was a taxonomist. In other words, he studied just um, the, the structure of flies. He tried to describe new species and things like that. And he was traveling looking for specimens in museums, and he came across a professor who was looking for graduate students. And basically, he, I called her up, and she's just like, yeah, come over. You can study whatever you want. And so I went there. I talked to the curator of the museum at the time, the insect collection, and he studied stratiomyids. And he's like, well, this group needs, needs to be worked on. And it just fell into place, and I loved it. What is the strangest insect that you have ever worked with as an entomologist? The weirdest one I uh, encountered is something called a harlequin bug or a harlequin beetle. It's a beetle that's about four to five inches long. Its front legs are longer than its body length, um, really long antennae, and it has these distinct orange and white and black stripes uh -huh. on its body. They're gorgeous, and yet they're just so odd-looking at the same time. Why do you think that they are so uh, bold? I, I read one time that, that insects were bright sort of as a warning to others, mm -hmm. don't eat me, you know, mm -hmm. right. the, sort of their right. natural defense. Is there uh, – can you give us more examples of bugs and sort of their natural defenses that they might have, just sort of even their coloring being a warning? The monarch butterfly, right? The, the, the caterpillar feeds on milkweed. And the milkweed has a toxin in it where if anything eats it, it will make whatever animal that tries to eat it really, really sick. So the, the, it's known as warning coloration. So usually things that are yellow and black, red and black, or orange and black, or some combination thereof. That's nature's those, warning. That's nature's warning. So with a caterpillar that's brightly colored, if a bird, say, tries to eat a monarch caterpillar, if it even gets a nibble of it, it's going to get really sick or it's going to learn, I don't like the taste of that at all. So the butterflies are the same way. They still have toxin in them. So butterflies that are brightly colored are usually toxic in some way. Not all of them because there are some brightly colored butterflies that like like um, uh, sulfurs. They're bright yellow or bright white. 
Uh, they're not they're not toxic, but it is still kind of that warning thing. But lady ladybird beetles, most people call them ladybugs. Uh-huh. They're brightly colored because they actually, from their from basically their front legs, their elbows, they secrete kind of a toxin. So if you ever pick them up and you get a little bit of juice, you know, on from from their from their legs, that's kind of a toxin. So anything trying to eat it is going to taste that and be like, "Whoa, that tastes horrible." Okay. So bright bright colors means I'm either dangerous or I'm poisonous. And so it's bright red, bright orange, and bright, bright yellow. yellow. Usually in combination with black. So if you've ever seen a honeybee or a yellow jacket, um, some kind of kinds of wasps. Now they're not poisonous. You know, they're not going to you know hurt you if you eat them. But they're dangerous because they may sting you, and that's their defense is the stinging. So, Dr. Bramer, can you tell us about some of the research that's being done, um, not necessarily what you might be working on, but other entomologists in general? There are a lot of organic products at, at the supermarket, and mm-hmm. there is a big uh, section organic and pesticide-free. Mm-hmm. And when I hear the word pesticide, I think of insects. Right. And so I'm guessing that probably some entomologists, their work focuses on pesticides and, and controlling different pests and the different things that they can do for that. Can you talk a little bit about how some scientists work to study those insects and why it's, it's beneficial for public health? Well, considering uh, insects, there are a million different described species. So that includes ones that are beneficial, ones that are problems. So there's enough for a lot of different scientists sure, to study. So entomologists like may specialize in studying some kind of a, a stink bug that's eating pears. So they would look at, you know, how can we control this insect either using a pesticide or by what is known as natural means. So it may just be finding a small wasp that will lay its egg on this stink bug. A wasp comes and lays its egg mm-hmm. That's what parasitic, on another. Parasitic wasps. They're little tiny. Some of these wasps are so small that they can land on the egg of an insect, as tiny as that is, lay their egg inside, and their larva will eat the inside of that egg. And so that pest, say stink bug, will never, never, never even hatch out of the egg. There are other ones, if you've ever seen caterpillars, big like, say, tomato hornworm caterpillars that may be eating your tomato plants. You see these little white things all along its back. A lot of people think those are insects. Those are actually the cocoons of a small wasp that's been feeding on the inside of that caterpillar. And it doesn't kill the caterpillar. It just feeds on the inside. The caterpillar still tries to walk around, but you see all these little white things on its back. That's actually really good. You want to keep that in your garden because the caterpillar is not going to eat your plant anymore. But all those little cocoons are going to hatch into new wasps that are going to benefit you because they're going to they're going to lay their eggs in another caterpillar and, and those, get rid of them. Well, and I guess that that sort of lends itself to another question: Does mm-hmm. that ever become a problem when there's too many wasps? No, or? no. That's the the good thing. The ecology of it is the predators always follow the prey. So if the prey starts going down in number, and there's those caterpillars go down in number. The wasps will not have anything to feed on, and so they will keep their numbers essentially in check. And besides, even if the wasp did get, like, thousands of them in your garden, they only parasitize that one caterpillar, so they would never sting you. They can't sting you anyways. Their stingers are too small, and they're not they're – not, that's not their, their thing. It's not like a yellow jacket nest or a big, a big uh, bee nest in They're your only yard. interested in those tomato caterpillars. caterpillars. Exactly, exactly. So there are some scientists, some entomologists that may study a pesticide – to get rid of those caterpillars instead of stunning the wasps that are beneficial. And some of these pesticides are synthesized. In other words, they make them in a lab. 
they say, hey, we found out this chemical is really effective for killing off this thing. Then they have to do a lot of tests on that before um, a branch of the government will, will okay it for release for people to use or farmers to use. They have to test it to make sure it's not too toxic to humans or to other animals. So they do trials and they do field trials. So they'll spray it on a field and just make sure that it's that it's really safe. So the entomologist will work with a chemist mm-hmm. and they work together to mm-hmm. try to eliminate the bad right, exactly. insect. Exactly. And there are some entomologists that are also chemists. So they develop these things themselves and they do the trials like in, in first in a lab and say a greenhouse and then they'll test it out in the field and then if it's safe, it's if it's deemed okay, it's very effective and it's safe, blah blah blah. Then they can actually go and release it or, or sell it to some farmers. Now there are some people that that would prefer to buy organic things, um, and certain organic things like say organic carrots or organic beets, you don't really need organic because the pesticide that even if they are spraying something on a field, it's not getting to the carrot what you're actually eating. It's only being sprayed on the green part of the leaf. But something like broccoli or something like apples. You may not you you may want to do an organic because that you're actually eating what they would be spraying something. Ah, like. What would you say is your favorite part about being an entomologist? Well, it used to be that I was I was one of of not that many, but here at the museum there's a there's quite a quite a number of entomologists here. But it's still the fact that more often than not, people will wonder what something is, it being an insect or some kind of an arthropod. And it's just fun asking questions and then they they realize that you don't have to be scared of it and they ask more questions on that and what about this and it just leads to really great conversations and I love being able to have people get outside and observe things. Well, fantastic. And along those lines, if a child were interested in becoming an entomologist or in learning more about this type of science, what would you recommend that kids do? How can they sort of build their knowledge base? Uh, just read as much as possible. I'm, I'm a big advocate of the public library system. Benjamin Franklin was brilliant for starting that. If you, if you have access to internet, search on the internet. Search for just insect or how do I collect insects or how can I start an insect collection. Uh, if you do are lucky enough to have a science center near you or some kind of a science museum like the, the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, come and ask questions. Every scientist I know that's here and every person that works in education loves answering questions. We'll never turn, turn a question down. So if, if you have the interest, don't, don't, let, don't let anybody stop you from asking questions. That's the main thing. Fantastic. Uh, and since this is the walk-in classroom, I have to ask, what's your favorite place to walk? Everywhere. <laughs> I used to walk, when I was doing my doctorate, I would walk uphill both ways, a mile to school and a mile back. And that would give me a chance and I would always carry a novel with me. I would read on the way to, way to when I was doing my, my doctorate work and teaching and I would do you know work all day and then I would walk back and read my book on the way home. So even if sometimes here, if I'm in a big parking lot, I don't mind parking towards the back of the parking lot because that walking gives me the chance to observe what's going on around me. So even if it's like, you know, there's there's a light in the parking lot, there may be insects flying around or I may see a squirrel or something like that. And it may seem common, but just watching things is my favorite thing. That's why I love walking. So it could be the woods. It could be on a, on a city sidewalk. There's always something to see outside. Fantastic. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me.